Hello, I'm Bob Gilmore. Welcome to Tentative Affinities, my ongoing series of audio documentaries about composers at work in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Today, I'll be talking about the music of the Romanian-French composer Horatio Radulescu. That was the opening of the third movement of Horacio Rodulescu's piano concerto, The Quest, composed in 1996 and played on that CPO disc by pianist Ortwin Sturmer with the Frankfurt Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Lothar Zagwozek. That movement is entitled Ancestors' Chants, and as you may have spotted, is based on a number of traditional Romanian carols, colinde, many of them taken from Bartok's published collections, and some of which, Radulescu said, exaggerating just slightly, could be several thousand years old. From them, he makes a movement that is a real tour de force of polyphony and heterophony. He described it as a sonorous stained-glass window. Radulescu's interest in what he termed the ancestors' music may at first seem surprising for a composer with a reputation as a radical avant-gardist. While being a fully contemporary artist, Radulescu always struck me as a man who was not entirely of our modern world. He seemed to have a sort of hotline to the ancient Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, or to Beethoven, or to Leonardo da Vinci. One of the many things I learned from him was that there was no contradiction between the ancient and the modern, that it was possible both to talk knowledgeably about the latest mobile phone and to love Josquin de Pré. I first met him in 1994 at a concert in London, then visited him several times over the years to discuss his music, up to his death in 2008. We would talk about his new compositional techniques until my head was spinning. Then he would drive me somewhere, often at high speed, especially if he was annoyed with somebody or something, and there'd be CDs of Bach and Gesualdo in his car, or Beethoven's fourth piano concerto. I find this love of the great traditions, and at the same time a burning need to push ever forward, to be tremendously exciting. 
Radulescu adored many kinds of music, from ancient traditions worldwide to the present day, and had a deep love of the traditional music of his native Romania. He found Beethoven to be, quote, the Himalaya of our psyche, but he also loved Wagner, Schoenberg, and Richard Strauss. Among the immediately preceding generation, he had much good to say of Messian, Ligeti, and Zanakis. He felt more ambivalent, though generally positive, towards Stockhausen, but had no time for Boulez. About his own generation, it's probably best not to quote him, but then few composers are really all that generous towards the music of their peers. In this program, I want to discuss and to play extracts from several different kinds of music Radulescu composed over 40 years. If you know anything about him, you may find what I just said strange. Radulescu has been described unequivocally in music history texts, those that bother to mention him at all, as a composer of spectral music, even, according to some writers, including himself, as the founder of the spectral technique of composition. I'll have more to say about that in due course. But I want to talk mostly about the two main terms Radulescu used successively to describe his music, sound plasma and spectral music. Horatio Radulescu was born in Bucharest in 1942 and spent his first 27 years there. As a boy, he studied violin with the pupil of Enescu and later studied composition at the Bucharest Academy of Music, where his teachers included some of the leading figures of the newly emerging avant-garde, Stefan Nicolescu, Tiberio Ola and Aurel Stroje. Radulescu graduated with a master's degree in 1969 and immediately made his escape to the West, settling in Paris and becoming a French citizen five years later. While still in Romania, he'd had the idea for a big piece that he worked on once he reached Paris. This was Credo for nine cellos, which Radulescu claimed many years later was the first spectral composition. He used nine cellos, he told me, because in Romania you express happiness by saying you're in the ninth heaven. We in the West talk about being in the seventh heaven, so clearly the Romanians are a happier lot than we are. The piece is made entirely from the upper partials of a low C fundamental, going as high, theoretically, as the 45th harmonic, and Radulescu uses a number of different playing techniques to animate these partials. Here's the beginning of Credo, from a live performance in Saarbrücken in 1979. Thank you. 
Those were the first three minutes out of 55 of Credo for Nine Cellos by Horacio Radulescu. Composed in Paris in 1969, but not premiered, as far as I can determine, until ten years later. When he came to the West and began to make himself known, Radulescu didn't yet use the word spectral to describe his music, largely because the term hadn't yet been coined by him or by anyone else. He did have another term, though, which he used repeatedly throughout the 1970s in connection with his music, sound plasma. He used this term in the title of seminars he gave in the Composition Studio in Darmstadt in 1972, which were entitled Theorie meiner Plasmatischen Musik. And it's also the title of a little book he produced shortly thereafter, which is the most valuable document we possess of his early ideas. Sound Plasma, Music of the Future Sign, was completed in 1973 and published by Edition Moderne in Munich in 1975. Sound Plasma is a theoretical text, a prose composition, and a piece of music simultaneously. At one time, it was intended as a PhD submission at the Sorbonne in semantics and musicology, but was never completed in that form. The book, which is only 24 pages long, is purple in colour, with the text printed in white. The theoretical text, describing his musical ideas, is overlaid in spidery writing with what Radulescu called stardust poetry, much of it quite beautiful, if rather, let's say, cosmic, which opens up further interpretative possibilities. This poetic text is placed over, or woven through, the theoretical material. Largely on account of its visual appearance, sound plasma does not resemble even remotely an orthodox music theory text. It looks charmingly of its time, a child of the experimental 60s, with its innovatory approach to typography, design, layout, and its multiple tones of voice that blur the distinction between separate categories of discourse. It's perhaps this aspect of the book that has caused it to be overlooked somewhat by music theorists. The idiosyncrasies of sound plasma become even more apparent when one starts to read. The opening paragraph exhorts the reader to meditate for nearly seven days upon the 5,040 combinations of the seven words composing the title, the title you remember being sound plasma music of the future sign. And only then, after meditating, to start reading. This rather optimistic suggestion, with its blatant evocation of the world of Stockhausen's Auster Siebentagen, lends an aura of mysticism to the proceedings. When the brave reader does finally venture on, whether after nearly seven days or sooner, you find yourself immersed in a dense text filled with jargon, much of it personal to Radulescu himself, and sometimes in less than clear English. For example, quote, the micropulse of the sound plasma, operating on the harmonic resonance formants, overtones, of the narrow frequency band and producing colour changes, sound spectrum consistency, quality, space, is the result of a naturally irregular and bi- or multi-directional evil involution between and within noise and sound. Unquote. The net effect of all this is that after a few short pages, the reader can easily become bogged down in the opaque quality of the discussion, get distracted by the stardust poetry, and make very little real headway. What, though, of the sound plasma ideas themselves? 
Radulescu's starting point is that where a sound is an endless ocean of vibrations, music has nonetheless traditionally treated sound as a fabric of discrete steps, as points and lines divided into categories such as monody, homophony, polyphony and heterophony. This discontinuance, by which he means our tendency to treat sounds as discontinuous objects or building blocks, is now, he believes, historically exhausted. It reached a pinnacle with Webern, and however beautiful it might be, Webern's music is seen as the end of a particular line rather than as a new beginning. Now, Radulescu claims, a new, quote, special state music, unquote, has begun, with works such as Ligeti's Atmosphere from 1961, and especially with Stockhausen's Stimmung from 1968, which brought deeply continuous sound beings, he says, into the world of contemporary composition. With works like Atmosphere and Stimmung lighting our way, we can now, Radulescu says, move more directly into the sound. The aim of his own work is to enter the sound, play there and from there. The emphasis is now on continuance rather than discontinuance, minimising the attack and decay portions of sounds in order to treat sound more like the plasmatic substance it really is. All this may sound terribly abstract, but it makes more sense when we listen to Radulescu's plasmatic works from the 1970s. These are pieces that are almost never performed today. I wish now that I'd asked him why he seemed no longer so concerned with them, whether simply out of a concentration on his newer works, which would be the case with most composers, or whether, in some sense, he felt distant from them. Here's an extract from one such piece, Flood for the Eternal's Origins, composed in 1970 and 71 and scored for global sound sources, speaking and singing voices, acoustic instruments and tapes. This is from an archive recording of its performance in Darmstadt in 1972, featuring a quite distinguished group of performers, including a 24-year-old Claude Vivier on Tam Tam.
That was the ending of Horatio Rodulescu's Flood for the Eternal's Origins, from its world premiere performance in Darmstadt in August 1972. As the decade went on, Rodulescu developed this sort of music and these techniques much further. But by the end of the 70s, there was something new in the air in Paris, a new kind of music that was named, in an article by composer Hugh Dufour, La Musique Spectrale, Spectral Music. Dufour's article, which is only five pages long, effectively introduced the term into music history. Perhaps oddly, the article, which was published in 1979, doesn't name a single composer who writes this kind of music. The text focuses on the nature of this new musical tendency and its aesthetic basis, not on a history of the genre or a roll call of its protagonists. Nonetheless, it's pretty clear who he's talking about. A group of young Parisian composers, chief amongst whom were Gérard Griset and Tristan Murray, who were involved with the composer collective stroke performing ensemble L'Itinéraire. Nowadays, it's those composers, rather than Radulescu, who are increasingly seen as having developed the techniques of spectral music. We can return now to the subject I posed near the beginning of this programme, Radulescu's claim to have originated spectral music. He would often assert his primacy over his better-known contemporaries, chiefly Griset and Murray, in this regard. His claims could be fairly bold, and he included them wherever he could in his curriculum vitae, in concert programmes, in CD liner notes. For example, the booklet for the wonderful portrait CD of his music released by the French company Ada in 1993 claims, anonymously, though the text was clearly written by Radulescu himself, quote, In 1969, Radulescu lays the base of the spectral technique of composition, unquote. Another typical example, this one a bit naughty, is the wording he came up with for the autobiographical note in the brochure that advertised his summer music courses in Sigishwara in Romania in 2003. Quote, In Paris, 1969, Radulescu founded the spectral technique of composition, being joined by Gérard Griset and Tristan Murray in 1975. Unquote. He wanted to imply that he had been fully six years ahead of his two slightly younger contemporaries, and even that their ideas were borrowed from him. This borrowed from could sometimes become fished from in his conversation. These proclamations were often accompanied by a mischievous smile, though there was no doubt, certainly in my mind, that he was deadly serious. He was delighted when James Tenney told him that it was not until 1972 that Tenney began to use pitch materials derived from the harmonic series in his music, three years later than Radulescu's Credo. He would grudgingly acknowledge only Stockhausen, with the spectral techniques in Stimmung from 1968 as a possible case of antecedence, albeit by a period of only a few months. In one sense, of course, what does any of this really matter? Radulescu's claims were, I think, a form of fairly harmless vanity. It's true that he had talked about his ideas in the early 70s to Messian's class, where he would have encountered both Griset and Murray, as well as, as we've seen, in Darmstadt in 1972, seminars that Griset attended. But Griset's early pieces, beginning in 1974, were based on rather different and actually more rigorous principles than those of Radulescu, which were still at that time plasmatic, impressionistically so, you might even say. As early as the mid-70s, Griset and Murray spent time looking at computer-aided analyses of the waveforms of complex sounds, studies that were quite sophisticated given the technology of the time, but fairly primitive by our standards today. 
The natural harmonic series was one such object of study, and an important one. It became the basis of the opening of Grise's Période and of his Partiel, in which the low E of a trombone creates a spectrum that is simulated by an instrumental ensemble. Rodlescu, by contrast, was temperamentally less inclined to adopt that kind of scientific approach. The work he did with harmonic spectra, when he made that the basis of his technique in the 1980s, was in essence simpler, more poetic perhaps, and led to a rather different kind of music. Besides, the term spectral music itself was not much appreciated by many of its supposed protagonists. In 1990, Grise remarked, quote, What bothers me about the term is its imprecision. You can put side by side composers as different as Hugh Dufour and Horatio Radulescu. As an example of Radulescu's later spectral music, here is his Lux Anime for solo string instrument from 1996. It was originally conceived for cello, but has also been done successfully on viola, which is how we'll hear it now. In this piece, the open strings of the instrument are retuned to what Radulescu called a spectral scordatura, simulating the fundamentals of a theoretical low E below the range of the instrument. The four strings are tuned from low to high to what would be the third partial of that E, in other words a B, its fourth partial, E, its seventh, which is a low D, lower than the tempered D, that is, and its eleventh, a quarter-tone sharp A. Here is Luxanime complete in a stunning live performance recorded in the resonant acoustic of Sankt Peter in Cologne by viola player Elisabeth Smalt.
Lux Anime by Horatio Radulescu in a live performance from 2013 by Elizabeth Smalt on viola. Compositionally, as we can hear in this piece, Radulescu's music can be quite rhapsodic. There is usually an elegant plan of the macro form, often structured by means of Fibonacci proportions, but the music itself is in no way systematic. Lux Anime, like many other Radulescu scores, is elaborately microtonal and avoids tempered pitches in favour of the pure tunings of natural harmonics. But not all his later music is conceived in this way, and in the mid-1980s he'd find a way to think in spectral terms even when dealing with a purely equal-tempered instrument. An example is the organ piece Amen from 1994, which is a glorious mixture of spectral thinking, techniques derived from Radulescu's student studies of serial music, and forlorn fragments of Romanian ancestors' music. Here's the beginning.
That was an extract from Amen by Horatio Radulescu, recorded in a church in Paris by the organist Christophe Maria Mosman. Some years before he composed that piece, around 1985 in fact, Radulescu had relocated to Germany. I don't really think life there changed his musical approach very much, but it did provide him with a number of important commissions, which he depended on to survive financially, and there he wrote a lot of his best music. But by the late 90s, he was on the move again, this time to Switzerland, where he spent the last years of his life with his third wife, the English cellist Catherine Marie Tunnell, for whom he wrote some wonderful pieces. In general, though, Radulescu's last decade was a time of somewhat diminished productivity. He wasn't always in great health. Indeed, he'd had health problems on and off since his childhood. One of the outstanding works from those years, however, is his last large-scale piece, Cinerum, Liturgy for Ash Wednesday, premiered in Dubendorf near Zurich in 2005. This is a 90-minute work for four male voices and nine instrumentalists. It has the feeling of an extended ritual, unhurried in pace and mesmerising in effect. It's also, at least with the benefit of retrospect, a valedictory work, with quotations from several of his earlier pieces, and it explores the range of techniques he had used throughout his lifetime. Here's an extract, the Agnus Dei, for four unaccompanied male voices, taken from a recording of the premiere. This once again is based on Romanian ancestors' chants, including some he'd used in his then recently completed fifth piano sonata. The melodies are heard here in canon, with the four voices proceeding at different speeds.
That was the Agnus Dei from Radulescu's Cinerum, sung in that live recording of the premiere in 2005 by the Hilliard Ensemble. To end with, I'd like to play the whole of what I think is one of Radulescu's finest works, his fifth string quartet, subtitled Before the Universe Was Born, completed in Freiburg in 1995. The subtitle, like that of many of his later works, is taken from the Tao Te Ching of Lao Tzu. Even though Radulescu was not a serious Taoist, nor a follower of any particular religion, he found enormous poetic inspiration in this text from the 4th or 5th or 6th century BC. The 5th string quartet, to me, is one of the high points of his spectral language. We'll hear it in a live performance by Holland's Zephyr Quartet, recorded in the Concertgebouw Amsterdam in 2006. This recording has never been released commercially, but has the considerable advantage that we invited Radulescu to Amsterdam to coach the quartet. He was at this performance, in fact I sat beside him, and declared himself delighted with the result. Thank you for listening to Tentative Affinities, and we'll end this programme with a live performance by the Zephyr Quartet, Barbara Lunenberg and Jacob Ploy, Elizabeth Smalt and John Addison, of the Fifth String Quartet by Horatio Radulescu. Thank you.